Hello, listeners. Welcome to Big Cloud's machine learning and data science podcast. I'm Kit, one of Big Cloud's co-founders. And for those of you that don't know, Big Cloud is a global recruiting firm. We hire data science and machine learning talent for exciting tech companies in Europe, Southeast Asia, and North America. In this podcast, you can expect to hear leading minds in data science and AI talking about their field and discussing topics exciting and accessible to all. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Kit, and I'm very pleased to introduce uh, the guest on this episode, David Purdy. Hello, David. Hi, Kit. Thank you very much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Um, David, where are you based for the benefit of the listeners? So I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, I've been working both in Silicon Valley and San Francisco for a number of years. And could you give people an overview of your background, David? Sure. Thank you very much. So I started a little over 20 years ago in what is now called data science. I began my career at the National Security Agency, and I've worked in everything from natural language processing and web search to high-frequency trading, medicine, and led and started a variety of teams at Uber and also have worked in autonomous vehicles. More recently, I've been looking to uh, advise a variety of companies and founders on how to optimize and develop their data science strategy using a lot of experiences and insights I've gained over this time on how do you form the team, how do you set the, the goals, and then how do you accelerate and reach the highest possible velocity in generating ideas that may work, validating them, and deploying them. So really, it's how do you achieve the speed of light in your technical development? And we're also going to talk about um, getting the strategy right behind data science as well on the pod, David. Um, For the benefit of of the people listening, could you um, give us some insight into your inspiration um, and people that have inspired you over the years? Sure. So first off, in beginning my career at the NSA, one thing that, that is very notable is the history of work in urgent contexts to develop the talents and tools to achieve to achieve research breakthroughs. And this is notable at Bletchley Park. Then in looking back even further, uh, Thomas Edison, one of the original founders of an industrial research laboratory, and subsequently work at uh, by Oppenheimer as well as the Apollo program. In each of these cases, there was something unprecedented that had to be achieved and a real sense of urgency and a very... Fascinating problem set, fascinating and talented teams. And so it's, it's, it's a real joy when you can work on something that's uh, unprecedented, hard, and also have to think very carefully, how do we get to the end result as quickly as possible? I think a lot of people may have seen the imitation game, David, and uh, I think the Bletchley Park project is dear to uh, many people's hearts in the UK. But could you just give people an insight as to why uh, Turing and Bletchley Park uh, has interested you? Sure. So for those who have seen the imitation game, it's spelled out fairly quickly early on, which is that the idea of approaching something as monumental as breaking the Enigma code using just human means, it's, it's, it's impossible. And something that uh, Turing and others really recognize is that you have to create a platform for being able to test ideas, to... Um, deploy those algorithms. So in this case, they were testing various ideas for code breaking and and then iterate on that. But you also have to align the teams around that. And as a result, they were able to do something that had never been done before. It's a, it's a great example, if you will, of how the platform can enable 
substantial breakthroughs. Uh, and I highly recommend another book. So it's quite a good point to make the distinction, David, about the difference in data science between um, the problems you're trying to solve. Um, could you just explain to listeners about a platform versus a singular model versus analysis? Sure, sure. So the, the, the thing about data science is it's often presented as if data science is ambiguous. The reality is you have different kinds of products or deliverables. So a lot of data science has been about delivering insights and analytics uh, to the to leadership on uh, corporate strategy, industrial strategy, uh, organizational strategy, this kind of thing. And for that, you may leverage models. You may leverage a variety of statistical techniques. The Another type of deliverable is the actual model that may go into production somewhere uh, that's deployed for all sorts of purposes. It could be for spam detection. It could be for driving a car. But in order to support these efforts, deployments of models, deployments of experimental frameworks, it's very, very empowering to have a platform. So you have to think very carefully, what are we developing? Are we developing something where the data scientists are the users, where the consumer is a computer, or where the consumer of the product is uh, someone who's uh, charged with making strategic decisions? And when, once you identify those goals, then you can work backwards to how do we develop the practices and tools to move quickly. And I think it's fair to say, knowing you, David, that um, you've built both platforms um, and also trained and developed uh, thousands of models uh, across your career. Is that correct? That's right. In fact, all three of these uh, avenues I've worked on, I have developed uh, reporting systems and um, uh, processes for COOs and CFOs. Uh, And of course, I've deployed thousands of models in different contexts and uh, have in leveraging those experiences, designed tools and frameworks first for myself, and then uh, designed frameworks and systems for uh, use by hundreds of data scientists so that they could also deploy thousands of models. And in the end, these have led to billions of dollars of incremental revenue, um, as well as greatly accelerated the, uh, the process of uh, bringing things to market. And where would be a good example um, within your career, David, of where you've been working on trying to achieve the speed of light for research? Sure. So I think a key example was when I worked in high-frequency trading. There, the market evolves very, very rapidly. And of course, there's, there's really no other environment where information comes in and your goal is to decide whether to act and how to act on it uh, as quickly as possible. This is for the model that is in production. In addition, though, markets evolve quickly. And so there's this, this research challenge of how do we set up an environment where we are generating ideas that have a high chance of uh, succeeding if tested, testing those ideas very quickly, and then having virtually no friction from the development of the idea to the deployment of the idea, and then ensuring that the deployment is highly, highly reliable. In high-frequency trading, things can break very, very quickly, as a number of companies have unfortunately experienced. And so when you think about that, you want to have simple, reliable, scalable tools. You also want to have a research agenda that allows you to examine what has happened with models, with algorithms and strategies you've deployed, and then use those to generate hypotheses on subsequent uh, iterations. And for example, when I worked at Goldman Sachs, uh, the effort that I led on high-frequency trading and interest rate products was able to deploy 30 model bundles in 30 weeks. And so 
we were developing and testing many models and strategies frequently than once a week and choosing the very best to deploy. And when we did so, we were able to show increasing returns uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And so this was, uh, this was an example that I, that I was very enthusiastic about. And really, as I've gone on in my career, I wanted to be able to create those opportunities for others. It's, uh, it's exciting to have your work have an impact and to have a real clarity on what you're researching, what you're developing, and dig into the really the deeper points of the system that you're trying to produce, rather than the more painful points of managing deployments or um, uh, systems in production that that may have unresolved issues. Did um, the environment, um, i.e., the stakes being so high within Trading David, have any impact on the research agenda or the culture of research? Actually, I've I've been fortunate. Not only is trading does it have its own sort of relatively high stakes, but I've worked in national security, medicine, safety. Everything is important, really. This is in in these environments. You want to have work that is. Um, you should expect that people will review your work, and really, science is about reproducibility. So, if you have a system that is uh, clunky, that is not well engineered, not well architected, then you're not actually going to spend as much of your time on developing high-quality research. If you, if you have a research process that is not well-organized, it's maybe not going to be as easy to reproduce. And so it's actually the, the totality of these experiences, realizing that I wanted to be able to create systems that were inspectable, that, other, that could be shared with others uh, and reviewed by others, have more eyes on the problem. Uh, that's, that's something that was very motivating. And um, are there any uh, red flags or things that you would speak to to highlight um, that you see as being inhibitors um, in achieving efficient, uh, fast research and iteration, David? Yeah, so at a high level, I tend to think about two goals that, that everybody should really pursue. One is clarity. The other is velocity. And the thing about clarity is, is are you working backwards from the goal? Are you working backwards from the the strategic objective, the business objective, and then what do you need in terms of a, the technical stack? And then what do you need in terms of the team to build a technical stack? And this technical stack is what data feeds do we need? What algorithms do we need? What infrastructure do we need? What kinds of um, models or loss functions might we need? All these kinds of things. And then, so are we building the team to build a technical stack to solve the, the business problem? So one inhibitor is just really lacking clarity. And working in the wrong direction. So if you start off by build a team, then figure out the technical deliverables, and then try to find a um, you know a buyer for this thing that you've made, you're 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 going to have a really slow go of it. The other is velocity, and velocity is as we all learn in in in, in high school, is really its speed and direction. And so you can everybody has the same number of hours in the day. And you can work very hard and you can have high speed. But if you keep changing direction or if you're not clear on the direction that you're ultimately going to go, you're just going to bounce around. And so if you think of the speed of light, it's really the fastest speed from, from point A to point B. And if you look back over the course of a project or an effort, and you think, well, how often were we moving in this direction? And given what we know, at what point uh, did we ask the right questions? Did we make the right investments? And what would have guided us earlier? So it's how do you set up the process? That's important. Uh, and then also, uh, 
how do you equip the process uh, with uh, of, of this industrial research that will move you forward? In terms of inhibitors, so one is, like I mentioned, this: uh, what are you working towards? So what what are you working towards on business goals? What are you working towards on the technical stack? That's very important. Another is really alignment across the organization. So you have data scientists, product managers, engineers, uh, various uh, executives. How are they all empowered and aligned? And when you look at a company, say, like Goldman Sachs, it's, a, it's an environment where there is a strong cultural push towards what I call lateral awareness so that people can move very, very quickly and are very empowered to do so. And I think that's, that's critical. Uh, it's not possible for one person to know everything, and it's not possible for um, one person to solve every potential hitch along the way. So you have to think about it as a culture. You have to think about it as practices. And moving um, from Goldman's into um, what was a much smaller Uber than it is today, David, <laughs> how did um, how was the culture different for you? And um, yeah, how do the approaches differ uh, in the relevant companies for you? Well, so that's 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 um, that's very interesting. So I joined Uber when it was about seventeen hundred employees, and it grew to twenty twenty five thousand the time that I left uh, last year. And in that environment, Uber, first off, it was legitimately data first. Uh, it, data is the basis of everything in terms of um, matching riders and drivers, pricing, uh, routing, et cetera, of trips, and then also managing the entire user experience, whether that's a rider or driver, and subsequently everything from Uber Eats to Uber Freight. It's also one similarity between the two is that Uber is a is a broker. It's a broker of transportation services, and so you know Goldman has been at that for more than a century. That was important for being able to set up uh, the right data frameworks within Uber is to recognize that you're dealing with the life cycle of a customer and the life cycle of a of a transaction. In terms of the differences, Uber is uh, was being much smaller necessarily had to cobble together uh, and leverage the best resources in, uh, outside of Uber. Uh, that's, that's very important. And, and, of course, it was in a massive uh, growth phase. And in that environment, you need a very high degree of uh, reliability for things that have never been done before. <laughs> so so that's, uh, that, was, that, that was certainly a very interesting situation to be in. There's tolerance for things breaking. That just, as I said, that comes with things having never been done before. Um, but it's, uh, but it's, we got there. We got there. It was a great, it's a great environment. And David, one of the uh, flagship projects that you worked on at Uber was Michelangelo. Um, could you talk about that for us and, and maybe about the strategy behind it and getting that right um, as part of the key uh, parts of the process? Sure. So, when I arrived, I formed the first team of data scientists leveraging machine learning uh, within Uber and quickly saw that there was not a single common tool. Uh, there, was, there was no effort yet invested in, in making machine learning available and integrated into the products. And it was very clear that, that if you're going to go this route, you need this for everything from customer churn to fraud to uh, ETA estimation, that machine learning would be critical for the company. And so I, looking back on the fact that I developed uh, machine learning toolkits and frameworks uh, for myself and my teams and previous uh, employers, 
pushed for, for having a machine learning platform. And so there's one difference here, which is that this is an enterprise machine learning platform. The idea is it's not just how do we get a single model developed or how does a single uh, user develop models and deploy them. It is about how do we create value across the entire company. And so there are entities, riders, drivers, and trips, for instance, that many different teams have an interest in. And what you want to do is have an environment where the underlying infrastructure and, to the greatest extent, the underlying data is as reliable as possible and that data scientists can focus on developing ideas on predictors, on models, on response variables, and investigating those as they look across Uber's hundreds of markets, across the many different products, and can create that value in the most efficient possible way. So rather than here's a library that uh, a person could download and they could build their own models and deploy them, it is here's a resource that they could leverage, that others could leverage. And then as people develop something of value, they're putting that into this platform. So an example would be uh, predictors on customer churn. It may be that those are useful for some form of marketing. It could be that they're useful for um, some form of product selection and whatnot. And so if one person has developed this, then they put this in there into a common feature store and others could then leverage it. So with Michelangelo, the, uh, the idea was to capture that which is complex, that which it needs to be reliable, and that which is really not within the expected uh, responsibility set of a, a federated group of users and put them into one environment and take out all of those frictions, all those impediments, all those things that if you look at the course of the year, you really don't want your data scientists to have to spend time on. And for that, there is a very slight friction of routing your data, routing your models through Michelangelo, but the payoff of being able to have this reliability and the payoff of being able to use others' uh, contributions is very, very significant. Would it be fair to classify it as a, as a sort of machine learning as a service style platform, David? Well, it is, except I would put the, the word enterprise at the top <laughs> because there are machine learning as a service uh, paradigms. And again, their, their, their value proposition is that they can help a user develop a model and then deploy that model, right? So Michelangelo does all of that, but it also is an environment where people who are not responsible for models can also inspect the models. If there is a model that is, whose behavior is changing or breaking, an engineer or a product manager can go and look at various charts and diagnostics uh, and about the models, about the output of the models, the inputs of the models, this kind of thing. There are abilities to have alerts and warnings and so forth. And so the enterprise needs this. And the goal is really on, yes, of course you're delivering machine learning, but it is integrated into the output of the enterprise. So it's integrated in products, it's integrated into analytics, this kind of thing. And so I think that's that's very, very important just to realize it's not an activity by itself, it's an activity that drives the value for the company. And uh, I know, because I know you, uh, that Michelangelo was, uh, has been incredibly successful. Um, is it still functioning in Uber, David? Are people yes. still using it on yes. a daily basis? Um, Best of my knowledge, yes. Uh, there's actually a lot of a lot of usage. Hundreds hundreds of users and thousands of models have been developed and deployed with it. And um, you know, it's uh, it's it's very exciting. There's uh, they've had significant results. So the last team that I led at Uber was the safety data science team, and uh, they work across the entire customer and transaction lifecycle, um, and have really been able to have all sorts of 
results all over the world that have been very, very beneficial and had a lot of use of Michelangelo as a result. And the Michelangelo team was an extraordinary partner in the development of these really complex applications. David, just um, because people might not immediately think about safety when they think about, um, uh, you know, an Uber or a ride-sharing company, why is the safety element so vital to Uber? And can you speak to what your team did? Sure. So at a high level, safety is in the interests of everybody, riders, drivers, uh, regulators, the public, employees, investors. And these are about rare events that are not anticipated right? in general. And so what you want to do is try to make an environment that is both measurably safer and uh, from the experience and, and, uh, and perception of, of users, you, you can commit to or facilitate the, uh, a stronger sense of safety. And so there have been incidents around the world, in fact, uh, from London to the United States to other 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 countries and municipalities, um, requests of Uber to report on and address safety issues. And Uber had a had an amazing safety report released released at the end of last year. Uh, no, to my knowledge, no other company has ever been as transparent about the nature and and volume of of, of incidents that have occurred in their in their ecosystem or their um, platform. So I was just going to ask how big Uber's kind of global uh, safety team is, or is that an impossible question? I guess I would put it as in there are hundreds of people who consider it a primary responsibility, but really thousands of people who are thinking about it and contributing to it, and, and many, many partners around the world, lots of nonprofit organizations, government organizations um, that are that are involved and so it's 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 truly it's it's hard to say, um, and that's actually one of the things that was really amazing. I began my career at Uber thinking I'm going to develop a team that develops machine learning. On my fourth, what we call Uberversary, I was I was with a wonderful team of people from around the world uh, involved in safety operations, uh, and that's truly remarkable. And that, as I said, there are these these things that happen as Uber has more than five billion trips rides per year. You have these interpersonal moments where things, vast majority of the time, they, everything is just as expected. Very uh, occasionally, there are there are issues that arise, and working with these these folks from many different backgrounds, whether it's electrical engineering, or consulting, or operations research, or psychology, and developing systems and processes in data science that could support. Uh, these goals was was very very exciting, and so I like to say that what we were doing was making rare events rarer. And uh, as I mentioned earlier about the product goals, we were delivering on platforms, algorithms, and analytics. And that's that's all of these are absolutely crucial. And David, I have to ask because we've spoken about this um, off air. Um, you interviewed a huge number of uh, aspiring uh, Uber data scientists in your tenure. Um, and uh, obviously not all of them were successfully hired. Um, but could you just explain for uh, listeners who are maybe you know interested in securing a job at a top tech company within data science um, a little bit about how you interviewed people at Uber and, um, yeah, any hints or tips for people to get a job there? Sure, sure. So there's a number of things that are important. First off, it's, all of this is a growth process. I was fortunate throughout my career to have a number of mentors. So having a mentor and getting feedback is, is very valuable. Another is 
to just continue to understand the problem space that you're working on. It is the technical stack is around methods, tools, um, infrastructure, code, all of these things. But really, you're working towards how do you have an impact? And so that means learning the business as well as the technology. Find those opportunities to work with engineering, with product, with the, with folks working on uh, marketing, or even design, user experience, finance. Get inside their heads. What questions are they asking? What problems are they seeking to to gain insight on and working on strategy, getting involved into the nuts and bolts, so reliability, scaling. At first, it's no fun. <laughs> but the reality is that when things break, it's often in these, in these, uh, in these um, sort of foundational things. So instead of sort of sitting apart from folks, dive in and learn from, from your partners in engineering and elsewhere. And there's, on top of this, working on writing and speaking is very important. You have to get used to explaining things simply. So listen to the people who can and try to explain to things to people who aren't like you. If you make it an assumption that a person has a strong understanding of the topic that you're presenting, then you're not stretching yourself. You're not trying to get into where they're coming from. And in some sense, you're not necessarily mastering the material that you're trying to communicate because you're already assuming people understand it. And it really goes from there. There's, there's, depending on the path that a person wants to pursue, there's a lot of uh, different technical and um, organizational considerations. But I'd, I'd start with realizing that you're trying to learn and communicate with others. That's really useful, David. And, uh, and I know that we've spoken in the past about um, maybe there's a kind of gap emerging between um, people are able to design and, and build models versus actually deploy them and, and kind of make them work in, in production. Um, are you seeing that as a trend in the market, that employers are wanting data scientists that have almost you know, software engineering level um, coding skills? Yes, and that's actually the wrong mindset. <laughs> so, 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 so really, um, if you take a data scientist who hasn't done much software engineering and you say, look, we're going to put you on the critical path for a key release. And so what you're going to do is you're going to learn a bunch of things you've never done before. You're going to try and make them work. It's going to be lightly reviewed, and then it's going to be pushed out. Um, and you, know, you have no experience of the whole life cycle of deploying code, of monitoring, of debugging. Uh, but that's, that's on you, even though it's your first time. That's, a, that's, that's not a good place to start. If you look at things in terms, and that's, that's sort of the first response of uh, the first iteration that starts with, well, you have somebody developing models and then they throw things over the wall and somebody else re-implements them and deploys them, right? So you're moving some of the work back to the, the, to the data scientist. Instead, really, and, and Google, Uber, and others have noted this, use your engineers at what they're really good at, building reliable, scalable systems. Think about what are those things that need to be done when you have somebody engaged for thousands of hours on, and many people engaged for tens or hundreds of thousands of hours on, those algorithmic deliverables. So a lot of it around the release process can be simplified, instrumented, automated, and just as that's done for software engineering and software releases, it can be done for model releases. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, we're seeing uh, more of a demand for 
full stack data scientists, inverted commas, or requests for people that have written, you know, production C++ or Python code as, uh, you know, within a data science position. Um, so it's interesting to hear you talk about that, David. Um, do you have any other um, words of advice or input to people um, that are within the data science field um, looking for um, a job at a bigger tech company? Sure. Well, so regarding the production Python and C++, it doesn't mean that you can remove programming from a requirement. It is the requirements around the deployment process that, that really need attention. In terms of the, the work of data scientists, it's a very reasonable expectation that a data scientist can implement mathematical code uh, in any given language. It is not hard to pick up. If you, once you've worked in one language, you'll see a lot of patterns that can be translated to others. And that's very reasonable. It is more about the, the, the computational workflow, the, the, uh, the relationship of um, different services, of different uh, infrastructure pieces that, if not well architected, will just lead to a lot of misery for everybody, frankly. Um, in terms of other advice, really try different things. Uh, try, during the downtime, try to think about what you could do more quickly. Try to think of how do you set up a research agenda, looking out weeks, months, quarters uh, to solve different problems, and then working with stakeholders to ask what do we need to do, work backwards from those goals to investigate different models, different sources of data, et cetera, and then how do we develop the tools so that you can generate, generate ideas, test them, and then, like I said, deploy them and you're, solving, and you're on your way to solving problems. Thank you, David. And um, I was going to ask you about deep learning specifically because um, it's all anyone talks about at the moment <laughs> in, sure. in this field. Um, what's your view on it, David? And are you seeing neural networks actually um, being fit for purpose and solving lots of problems? Um, or do you think it may be a little bit overhyped? And uh, yeah, could you um, shed some light on it for us? Sure, absolutely. So um, it is an area that I would highly recommend it, but it's important to think of how do you ask questions of data, period. If you're thinking of, I have ideas, I throw them against the wall to see what sticks, you can do that with deep learning, you can do that with traditional machine learning. That's not asking questions, that's not developing really a research agenda. Uh, with deep learning, absolutely, and work that uh, teams that I've led, in, uh, both Uber and in autonomous vehicles, uh, this has been a key component of visual uh, based systems. So there are a lot of traditional works in computer vision. These have uh, gotten to different measures of utility and quality and so forth. And sometimes you can you can develop a product fairly quickly using these standard libraries, uh, drop predictors extracted from them into different machine learning models and sort of be off to the races. The thing is, is that these systems aren't necessarily, these tools in traditional computer vision, uh, aren't necessarily optimized for your 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 prediction goal, your inferential goal. Um, by incorporating deep learning, you're working more closely with those source material, images, videos, text, this kind of thing, and working directly towards the uh, the prediction or the inference problem that you're uh, trying to tackle. It does take time. It's also very useful if you have a uh, somebody that you can consult. So at Uber, for instance, the Uber AI Labs team is an outstanding partner to uh, program and product teams throughout the company as they're adopting deep learning. So they have a number of experts 
and they provide consulting and uh, support capabilities. It does take time to develop that awareness, but overall, uh, I, if somebody is already committed to data science and machine learning, then I would definitely say seek, seek to go further. And um, you mentioned consulting there, David. Obviously, that's a focus of yours at the moment. Um, how are you finding life as a consultant, David? Have you um, yeah, encountered any interesting companies? Um, do you think it's the right kind of uh, path for you moving forward? Uh, I, so this, this is something that I, uh, I've been approached by a number of friends and, and companies over the years about advice on X or Y or Z. And if they're developing, if they're starting with let's do machine learning platforms as a service, then given the work that I've done at Uber, that was something that was very natural. And again, there I, when starting the Michelangelo team, I, I filled in as the, the product manager saying, here's speaking as the voice of the customer, i.e. data scientists, here's what we need to develop, right? And so that's, that's an environment that is exciting because it's about not just solving the problem within one company, so within one enterprise, but they're developing systems for the benefit of obviously as many companies as they can they can they can attract, and that's that's exciting. Uh, I've I've worked in a number of different industries, and so I, I would love to uh, to help folks benefit from that. There are various companies that are further along in their development of data science organizations and strategy, and reaching that point of how do we improve the cadence? How do we improve? the velocity, how do we improve the career growth for, for data scientists, all these kinds of things. And on that, I've, again, uh, I'm excited to, to, to help them out on that. So we go every, everything from very technical to very strategic and leadership uh, interests. Along the way, there are also some fascinating, fascinating applications and startups in everything from consumer-oriented to SaaS-focused uh, ventures that I'm advising and uh, very excited about what these will be able to help people do. I was going to ask you about interesting applications of, of machine learning. Uh, you obviously got your finger on the pulse, David. Um, yeah, are there any problem spaces or, or challenges um, or applications of machine learning that you think are particularly exciting um, over the you know next couple of years? Yes, yeah, so I can't quite get into <laughs> some of these areas, given that I, <laughs> that uh, that, I'm, that I that I that I that I want to help some of these individuals uh, really uh, these these organizations get ahead. But if you Think about there are verticals, so this is this is industries, if you will, and there are activities, so something that may be common to many different companies, regardless of their industry, that are not leveraging data, much less machine learning, much less um, various advances in interfaces at all. <laughs> so it's not even that we're talking about going from like version seven to version eight. It is that there are just key holes in a lot of different um, spaces where companies exist to either help other companies or help consumers, and this is this is very very exciting. I, I, I from the standpoint of taking a taking a large space and then decomposing it, and instead of thinking, okay, I want to make a known thing better, that just finding massive holes is, is very exciting. That was that was something that happened for me at Uber. There was there was no tooling for data scientists. Wasn't that I want to build a better um, mousetrap on on machine learning platforms? There was none. There was no tooling. Similarly, there had been no system for predicting in real time the demand and supply around the world. So I moved over after the Michelangelo team was up and mature. Moved over to start the real time forecasting. And so there are some exciting exciting things where their entire uh, industries 
just as Uber filled in a gap in transportation. There are entire industries that, that are really not leveraging data and machine learning. And then there are a lot of activities done by people that um, really are fairly primitive. And, and uh, uh, I think we can do a lot to help them do either work or find or, or uh, engage with other companies or other people much more efficiently. Uh, so I, I had to get into the specifics, but I, but I think that there's a, really a lot of very foundational stuff that has yet to be touched. Um, we are increasingly talking to candidates that are interested in working on machine learning or AI for, for good or for social impact, David. Um, are you seeing a trend for that in your network or um, is it becoming a hotter topic, as it were? Honestly speaking, this is something that has been around for, for, for a very long time. How do you, how do you leverage... In fact, this has motivated a lot of statistics over the course of more than a century. How do you improve uh, everything from agriculture to education to medicine to social services? Uh, and how do you develop the right quantitative awareness? How do you de develop the right forecasting? Because in, in these environments, there's uh, real consequences for individuals, and there's also a real shortage of, of, of high-quality data, of actionable data, talents. And so I think having more minds on this is, is very, very valuable. And there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of first world problems that, are, that, that people want to solve through clever advances in machine learning, but there's a lot of, uh, social issues that could, that really are unaddressed across the board. And it's not just by data science and machine learning, but yeah, I, I think that this is, this is one of the more stimulating and rewarding uh, areas one could could go into. Dave, I wanted to ask you about um, conversion courses or online machine learning courses, um, Coursera, Udacity, for example. Um, being someone who's been in machine learning for over 20 years, what's your perception of them and are they a good um, avenue uh, for people to, to go down that are looking to move into machine learning, would you say? Certainly, they give you a lot of ability to work at your own pace and autonomously. So that's there's there's no question. There's no there's no competition. There's no competition for having that flexibility, that flexible path for learning something. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's you're 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 trying to develop a talent for solving problems, right? So focusing too much on uh, what in the past people would call book knowledge is 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 at the expense of not necessarily understanding how to solve a problem that you can't just look up in a book. And that's um, what I would say is, is think about projects, think about opportunities to collaborate, think about hackathons, this kind of thing. Um, even if you're starting with something that has a very humble but time-limited goal of, of, of a project, whether it's a hackathon and it's just a couple of days or a project that runs for a couple of weeks or a month, I think that's important. And you'll, you'll quickly reveal all of the things that you realize you didn't know, <laughs> right? And so as you, as you um, look at that, then it goes back to what is the technical stack? What do I need to deliver that technical stack? Uh, and then, of course, just getting more fluency with your stack. So uh, instead of just watching videos about, say, SQL, set up a database, <laughs> right? And then, and then leverage it in some sort of an application. Um, that's, I think... Very, very important. And you can tell quickly if a person has a lot of experience in, in, uh, in sort of a mindset for solving problems or if they're going to need a lot of guidance on how to use the tools they already know in order to solve new problems. Very interesting. So I guess the message there is 
you know, applying the learning and getting Absolutely. the weeds and breaking stuff is is the key part. Um, Absolutely. To embed Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So they're great resources, but they should not be your only uh, investment of time. Have you read any interesting books recently, David? Ah, so <laughs> so I'm 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 actually reading some some works on Renaissance architecture lately, uh, but um, I try to keep up with um, a lot of different aspects of data science and machine learning. But yeah, I'm, I'm, these days I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how did people um, sort of communicate their learnings in the past. And so that's, that's um, an over the years. And so that's, that's near and dear to my heart. <laughs> Interesting. Are there any um, data science uh, or machine learning books that you hold in particularly high regard? Well, I've always loved the, uh, the um, elements of statistical learning. <laughs> um, so by Hasty, Tibshani, and Friedman, that's 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 uh, that's wonderful. Um, also, uh, book Deep Learning uh, by uh, where Ian Goodfellow is one of the authors is is another uh, great text. I am um, honestly a lot of a lot of um, a lot of what really interests me comes down to practice and what folks have learned from their practices, and I think those for that I've. Sort of just collected readings um, from Google to you know decades or centuries ago. Uh, book a couple of books that I also like are Advice for a Young Investigator. Uh, it's it's quite dated. It was written in the late eighteen hundreds. So it's comments on social on social be, you know uh, social behaviors and norms and so forth is a little uh, is more than uh, more reflective of its time than the current in the current era. But its practice, its advice on uh, best practices by junior scientists is outstanding, and there's not a lot of books in this domain. I think that's a that's a good book. And then another book uh, that uh, that uh, I've often shared with uh, colleagues um, and uh, junior colleagues is called "The Unwritten Laws of Engineering." And it it starts with a premise that when you begin your career, you master the technical um, expectations of your of your of your role. But nobody teaches you how to work with others, and it it has a lot of precise and useful advice on how to manage projects, work with others, uh, execute, communicate, etc. They all sound very interesting. I think we'll um, link those books uh, with the pod release so listeners can uh, get their hands on them, David, and um, yeah, give them a read. I just wanted to ask if you um, wanted to summarize or, um, yeah, go back to any key points, David, um, that you think listeners should pay particular attention to um, before we wrap up. Well, in general, you're you're going to try to solve a lot of problems in this world, and so think about as as you're as you're doing this, not only the the issue that you're tackling, but reflect on it over time and what could you have done better, both in the process, in the algorithms, in the the data used. Right. Be humble. Uh, it's better to make many small iterations that overall are marching towards uh, some goal than to take forever, uh, especially earlier in your career, on something where you're not going to see the outcome for, for a long time. It's, uh, you're going to learn a lot along the way. And so really try to find the people that can give you the feedback and try to uh, take humble incremental steps but always reflecting on what you could do better david it's been a pleasure um i know how much uh, you know and how much you probably have to talk about in this uh, field so uh, i'm going to drag you back onto the pod again in the near future and we can cover some other interesting areas um but for now thank you very much 
Thank you, Kit. It's always a pleasure to talk to you.